What's up, everybody? Welcome to another week of the Search for Growth. You are joined by myself, Alfie Marsh, and Chris Gibson. We are just two guys who work in startups in the search for professional and personal growth. Each week, we get together to discuss frameworks, principles, and strategies for success in both business and in life. Chris is the founder of Wavelength, a bootstrapped edtech company, and I am the head of go-to-market at Spendesk, a venture-backed fintech startup. And with that being said, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about generative AI. And uh, let's get into it. Chris, how are you doing? How's your week been? Good. Really good. It's getting cold. If you can see my jacket, it's it's cold out there right now. Yeah. Ski season is upon us, which would be nice. I think Tahoe had about four foot of snow dumped in the last uh, in the last week. So there's a few people looking to head up and get oh, on the nice. slopes. Yeah. 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 That rain was nice the past couple of days. Yeah, yeah, de definitely colder. We've got the sun coming out now, though. How you so, doing, Liz? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's It's been a busy week. There's been a lot of stuff happening. We recorded another pod about the layoffs that's happening in the industry and that's some of the market turmoil that's happening at the moment. And on the flip side, there's also some really interesting pockets in the startup ecosystem, which are just absolutely exploding at the moment. So in, in quite the opposite context to the layoffs. And that's generative AI is one of the big ones. And we've been following this topic for the last few weeks, and I'm excited to get into it and figure out what it's all about. Yeah, it's fascinating. So when I was at Dartmouth, I studied cognitive science, and it's basically understanding how the brain works and neural networks and how AI is incorporated. Like, how do we build AI? How does it, how do we compare that to the brain? And AI has always been this buzzword that a lot of people use. Oh, we have AI in our platform. We use AI. And some have, and obviously bigger companies will use it more. But in the last like month or two, generative AI has really exploded. And in this episode, we'll just talk a little bit about implications for building companies. So do you, generative AI, what is it? An organization has a bunch of data that they train a model on that when given an input will output a different output. And I'm talking at more te technical level, but what does that mean? We could feed all of your LinkedIn posts to this model and we could then say, okay, write a post on layoffs. And this model would take all of the information that it knows about how language is parsed and then it will update that a little bit based on the information it has about how you write LinkedIn posts. And then it will generate text based on how you write that is a summary of layoffs. And that's just like text-based. Generative AI is also image-based. So <clears throat> you've probably seen artificially generated images where people have typed in like mountains and a cat or something. And then there's an image that's created of mountains and a cat. Prior to the last couple months, there were earlier versions of generative AI, but those earlier versions were less sophisticated, trained on less information, and the output was closer to an uncanny valley. Do you know what the uncanny valley is? No idea. There's two okay. things you just said I don't know. What okay. does pass mean? For the non-tech, what does okay. the pass mean for the non-tech-minded folk? But uh, no, please go ahead and explain those to me. Okay, parsing. 
say you have a sentence. Did you ever get taught grammar in schools where here's the subject, here's the verb, here's the object? Yeah, even though my grammar sucks, I did learn that <laughs> at school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically what parsing means is you take data and like a sentence and you take a word and you assign a value it to it. So Parse you're like tagging the, it, you're tagging it with tagging uh, this it, is a verb, yes. this is a noun. Okay. Yes. Okay. And so. this happens also with autonomous vehicles where you're tagging this is a fire hydrant, this is a bike, this is whatever. Okay. Basically what parse means is you are taking some type of data and you're turning it into a different type of data. You can also parse like data structures into a different data structure. Okay. That, okay. So maybe just before we go into the details, the thing that you said, just to make it clear to uh, the difference of what generative AI, maybe f compared to an AI, I guess the thing we're basically saying here is historically we've used artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to better analyze a data set and have more powerful ways of doing things. And it's almost like a productivity tool in this new wave of generative AI. The, I think the key takeaway is you put in an input and you get something out. But this thing that you get out is actually never seen before. It's been created. Whereas in the old kind of version of AI, it's using what's existing and maybe to pull something out for you in analysis. But this is actually creating something that you've never seen. So you give it a prompt. This is an image. I want to have a cat in a photo in a mountain that looks like Switzerland. And it will use its, its model to create a new thing. So when you refer into the LinkedIn post, it's going to say, I'm going to use Alfie's LinkedIn post. And then we give it a prompt for this new subject. And it's going to create a new post that I've never written before. But the idea is that it should sound like me. It should be written in, the, in my writing style because it's using those inputs. But fundamentally, it's taking something and then generating something new. It's almost predicting what it should write based on its inputs, but it's fundamentally something new. Yes. And to go back, the uncanny valley is when something seems almost dreamlike. It's like previous to the current situation, if you were to try to generate content, it would be very close, like an image. They might have images with having a hand with seven fingers. So it looks very similar to a hand with five fingers, but like it's people don't have seven fingers. And that is the uncanny valley. And we're kind of over that as much as you can think about the uncanny valley in images, which is very specific and you understand what that would look like. That also happens with text too. You could be reading some AI generated text and you understand that it's not written by a human because of the way certain phrases are. It's if you're learning a new language and there are some phrases that just don't translate word for word. Mm. And you can see that difference that the person isn't a native speaker. Very clear. And so you're basically saying that in, in the last weeks, months, these models that generative AI has been built off of has got to the level where we are coming out of the uncanny valley. Yes. And we're still not there yet, totally. Um, so let's back up. What's the landscape like? There's private companies like OpenAI. OpenAI has things like Whisper. Whisper is their speech to text like model. They have Codex, which is their like natural language to code model. They have GPT-3, which is their like text model. They have Dolly 
two, which is their image generation model. All of these, it's a private company, it's raised money. You have to pay to use its APIs. Some of these have APIs and some don't. So to back up a little bit more, there's some of these things exist in the world. Dolly, you can go onto the website, text, write, I want a blue mountain with a squirrel and it'll create that. And, but the only way you can access that is through the web browser. And that's like the V1. It's like, they've created this pro this platform that allows you to generate it, but they haven't actually given people access to it programmatically via an API. Recently, Dolly has come out with an API, but what's the value of these APIs is that somebody who does not have much knowledge about AI or generative AI or like how to train a model or whatnot, but they do know how to use an API, they can get, they can embed this generative power into their company, which. So this is, so the comparison, I think in terms of the historical landscape, where in, in that kind of first wave of AI, where a lot of bigger companies were able, had data sets and were able to create not generative AI, but just standard AI stuff. The kind of historical wave in the last, what, five, five plus years has really been around, well, more than that, five, 10 years, but big companies, Google, Facebook, so on and so forth, they have large sets of data and they've also got the technical know-how to actually build models internally themselves. And so they have been previously like the only companies to really capitalize on that last wave of AI because they have the resources and have hired in or created the know-how internally. But and what you're the saying, data. And the data, which is a huge bit yeah. to train the models because yeah. it's not just the model, but you've got to train it, right? Yeah. Um, and in the same way that you learn a new language, when I learn French, for example, one of my training data is to read books and listen to podcasts. So there's like my model, which is just how my brain works, but I also need the inputs to actually learn it. And so Facebook had the, the brain, but they needed the inputs and that's, they've got that data from all their use base. But what you're saying with open AI, it is a private company, but the purpose of this private company is to build these models themselves and they're using training data from like the whole web. So GPT-3, which is the text, you type in some prompts in text and then it will create, say, write an article about this and then it will create an article. How are they, what's the training data? Well, they've scanned at 80% of the web and they're using these in these big kind of general models to be able to then output. So this private company is existing with the ambition, with the goal to democratize access to models. So now we're arriving in this period in this ecosystem where startups without lots of money or resources to a hire in AI and machine learning talent. And also they don't have the data sets. They can now access the same kind of power that the larger companies can, but they just do this by accessing an API and pay per request. Yeah. You use the term purpose and I'm not sure that they, whether that is the correct term. I like, that is one thing that they're doing. One of the reasons for open AI is also to just get in front of the wave of AI that is going to happen inevitably. And so that they can, there are a lot of concerns with AI about abuse. What can you do with it? What happens if bad actors are able to take advantage of it? What happens when it becomes more sophisticated? And all of these challenges, which are cannot be understated are massive challenges. OpenAI is trying to figure out a way to do this in a like pro 
community pro like in a good way. There are other tools that are open source. Stable Diffusion is one of those, and they they have a different data set that, but like still. The idea is it's a ton of data that they get trained on. What's interesting about those open source things is you can run it on your computer. Like you can, instead of, we think of interacting with tools mostly via the cloud or externally, but some of these tools you can use and just run on your computer too. And the difference between open source and these private companies like OpenAI, the open source is effectively a bunch of developers in a community who are all working generally for free on this, on this project and anyone can access the code or the models that are being used freely, basically. And so there's some benefits to that because you have more people working on it. OpenAI has only got the people that are working with inside their company to focus in on it. Whereas open source potentially has inputs from the entire community. So it's, it's almost like a different business model, basically. What's interesting about this space is one, everyone can use this and it's happened very quickly. You talk about transformative change in, changes in technology and it goes to first was a personal computer, second was mobile. This is like one of those potentially phase shift differences in how technology will operate. But what's interesting also is there's this question of if everyone is using the same models to add generative AI to their applications, how differentiated is this technology? Like what makes it valuable if everyone knows that sales content is a great idea to use generative AI, instead of actually having to sit down and write a blog post, write a tweet, write sales copy for an email, if you can just type something out, some like bulleted thing, this is what you want it to output, a blog post with that talks about how to leverage your SDRs correctly or something that'll be, and you can just click a button and it creates a 500,000 word post that you post on your website. Like that saves so much time. But if this data, if anyone can create a model that does that, how do you actually differentiate between the two tools that output that information? Yeah. Models themselves almost become commoditized and commodities end up just competing on price. And that's not a game that any entrepreneur wants to be in. There are, do you want to dive into this now before the landscape? We'll go into the landscape maybe after. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In, in this scenario, then what are some of the ways, what are the risks of opting for generative AI approach or building a company around this? There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of funding going in here, but as you said, if everyone is ultimately using these models, a lot of people are building models from open AI. And if everyone's using the same models, then where is the value? So let's talk about some of this, the commoditization risk and what are some of the risks and how a company is going to be able to get over that? Yeah, the risk, there are a couple of risks and the, and <laughs> unlike other products or like where you can spin up an engineer can spin up in a web app with no dollars and a website with no dollars generative ai and using these apis cost money from day one so open ai's most sophisticated model davinci they have four models davinci is the most sophisticated one it costs two cents per 750 words which doesn't sound like a lot but if you think about this is also 750 words includes the words that you are giving 
the model to translate. So it would include the LinkedIn posts that you have written already as data to output. From the very beginning, there is a cost to adding generative AI to your platform. And that's also interesting because if this is something that people use a lot, a ton, you you really have to be focused on how to get revenue from this feature because Mm. it is going to cost you. If more people are using it, that's a good thing for you, but it also, there's a linear relationship with the cost of goods. So you're looking at this from the perspective of an entrepreneur who's building a business around generative AI and saying that for you, effectively, if someone makes a request and you're leveraging OpenAI's API, they may pay you X for a request, but don't forget, like you've got to pay OpenAI and it's going to be for all the words that they give you and all the words that they give back. So it's if you're going to do like a cost plus pricing, if it costs you, how many cents did you say it was? Two cents per 750 words. So if it's going to cost you two cents for 750 words, then maybe you charge four cents to the other person, right? So you've got to ask yourself, A, am I creating enough value that it makes sense for them to pay me more money? And B, also in just in terms of the business model, in these early days, do you even want to charge them anything to get like market share? So I would be looking at that and saying, okay, in these early days, the price is fairly high per API request. I would also be thinking in the medium to long term that, if this is going to become commoditized and with if there's more players because everyone else can do this then the price should come down but if everyone is using these same uh general purpose models uh, like open ai and there's only one big player in the market then that risks having a monopoly and they won't the price might not come down so i guess the point is as an entrepreneur in this industry, it's worth keeping an eye open for, are there going to be more open AI type models that are going to collectively force those general purpose ones to come down over time? There are other companies doing it outside of open AI. And also to be clear, there are cheaper models that are less good than DaVinci. So for certain parsing tasks might be better. You can also drive down the cost by like, fine-tuning a specific model in other ways so that you fine-tune their general purpose model using some data that you have. And instead of having to add that data to every request, it's only added once. If that Does that make sense? So instead of sending your LinkedIn posts every single time to generate one LinkedIn post, you can fine-tune a model where I just send your LinkedIn post once yep. and... Oh, that might be expensive off, off right off the bat, but over time, it'll drive the price down slightly. One one thing we just said, right? The commoditization of the bigger models. If everyone's using the same thing, then how are you going to add incremental value? The other one is, the other takeaway here is, can you localize that general model into something more specific to your use case? So one of the things maybe it's important to mention is you get these models from OpenAI, but you can also fine tune them. And you can add in incremental data from, for example, let's take the GPT-3 example. That's trained generally or generically off of the internet, everything that scrapes 80% of the internet. Whereas, and so that might give you a certain tone, a certain way of writing. Whereas when you go onto Twitter or LinkedIn, both of these platforms have very different styles of posts that work in terms of the way the wording is, the way the formatting is. And so if you just use a generic GPT-3 model that's coming from OpenAI, you're just going to get a fairly similar output in all of those examples. Whereas 
maybe one way to create value is to say, okay, we're going to create a copywriting company just for LinkedIn posts. And then you take OpenAI and then you retrain it or give it that incremental data by scraping all the LinkedIn posts and then being able to write it in a way, analyze which are the high performing ones in terms of format and types of words that are used. And then let's use that instead. And then you yep. could do that the same for each of the different platforms. So if you talk about like, how do you differentiate yourself? It's going to come down to those fine-tuned models. Who, and how do you get a good fine-tuned model? One is how much data do you have? If we just look at the number of LinkedIn posts that you have that perform really well, that is a certain subset. But what happens if you could get the top thousand LinkedIn influencers and their top performing LinkedIn posts, that model is going to have that much more precision at what performs well or not. So the amount of data and two is also the feedback loops. So if you can create some system in which there is an output and then a person types what they actually want, because with this generative AI, usually in this stage of the technology, there's a human that it analyzes like reads the output and like fixes the errors because there might be some errors. Can you use that feedback of that person change that output to be X, Y, and Z and feed that back into the model to train it even better? So if we gave okay. an example in like an outbound sales process where you've got SDRs sending in cold emails, you may have, so there may be a few things. Let's say you have a ton, you have your target audience, your email list that you're contacting. And let's say in your CRM, you have a bunch of data on, okay, this company raised funds, this company, uh, or this person's just moved jobs. They just got promoted or they just started as a VP of whatever. And these become like prompts into the model. And then on the other side, it then spits out some, let's say a hook. So let's say you've got three different types of prompts and we want to create a hook into that email. And so you input those prompts and it spits out a hook. In terms of the fine tuning, there's a, maybe two elements that you could do. Firstly, you might go and say, let's fine tune this model with this particular rep's own emails to give it their flavor of talking because every individual person has a flavor of talking. That could be one. Maybe it's let's train it on the overall company. So every company is going to have their own unique value propositions. It's going to have their tonality. For example, if you're talking to startups, it's more, hey, John, whereas if you're talking to someone in a more formal banking, it's going to be, hi, John. And these sorts of little touches. And then thirdly, as a case of when the prompts, you, the prompts are there, and then the model creates a hook, you can then say yay or nay, I like this, I don't like this. And then that's another input to be able to train and localize that model. So with these different types of training, you can then create really effective and non-generic outputs. It's taking everything from the internet plus localizing to maybe the person, the company, or the inputs that the reps have given the model. Yeah. So if you think about HubSpot and like a sequence of emails, you have a template, you like are able to put in certain data values in the template, but it's pretty, the template is static. It is not going to change from sequence to sequence. With generative AI, there, it can add dy dynamic content with that, those same tags being different. Yeah. Um, so as much as there is a like distribution channel difference in how, and right now we're just talking about text exists on LinkedIn or Twitter, as you were saying, there's also vertical specific language. So if you're in construction, you might talk about things differently than if you're in ed tech or if you're in fintech. And that type of language precision by vertical 
is also going to be very important. You can totally see generative AI being valuable because if you exist within a vertical and there's a specific language associated with that vertical, you can just make a model that is fine-tuned to generating that content with a click of a button. And part of what's cool about vertical SaaS is the ecosystem by which you're able to build technology within a base that is more than just one small use case. And it's that ecosystem that generative AI could really thrive in because it's just a super value add feature that is hyper-specific to that vertical that other companies probably don't have the data or the way of knowing how to speak to those customers hmm. or whatnot. Take LinkedIn and going back to Twitter again, LinkedIn is pretty hot on not scraping stuff from <laughs> their database, <laughs> understandably. And uh, they would be in a prime position to build like this ancillary tool to help content creators create better stuff that goes more viral because they're writing in a way which the ultimately the user wants to read something. And so that would be an amazing like additional value tool that they could charge for and make a whole business around but then it's this question of okay that's the incumbent capturing the value of generative ai versus what about the startup there was a an article written by a guy called elad gill he's written a book called the high growth handbook i strongly recommend this and that's in a startup or have entrepreneurial endeavors particularly in high growth startups and SaaS type company to give this book a read it's fantastic we've put it in the show notes and he discussed this question which is incumbents versus startups where is the value capture going to be and when we look at the first wave of ai in the preceding decades it was mainly the incumbents that captured the value so the facebook's the Googles, the TikToks, talk is not really a, a, an incumbent, but the big companies that were able to, like you said about, they have access to that data, which was a huge thing. And they also had the money resources and ability to hire the talent to then go and build those models internally. So they, all, they were able to capture that data. One of the other reasons why in this wave, it was more the incumbents that captured the value from AI. Elad talks about the fact that the first wave, the technology perhaps created 0.5 to 3x improvements in the output. So you've got a bunch of data, instead of having a human go in and say, oh, let's look at this data and analyze it on charts and say how I should optimize it. Let's just get AI to do it because they're 0.5 to 3x better. Now that's 3x better improvement, that's 300%, that's pretty impressive. But what he says here is that because of the difficulty in a startup overtaking or making a wedge against incumbents, you have to be 10x better than an incumbent to actually wedge them out. So Salesforce at the moment has an absolute hold on the CRM market and any CRM, which is 50%, 100%, 200% better, it's still not good enough because it's not just about being better. It have to be 10x better for you to even consider ripping that out because of the complexity and all the other benefits that Salesforce has, the network, the apps that are integrated. And so what Elad, Elad says in this article is, that wave there was only incremental to a certain degree improvements in generative ai the technology is creating 10x 20x 100x improvements because it's a step change improvement it's not an incremental one and therefore there is an opportunity for if you're going to create a let's say for example sales loft outreach and all these email sequencing tools for sales teams 
that's a, maybe a 1x, 2x improvement from doing it manually. But let's say you create a new tool like that and the whole like point of your tool is to use generative AI to completely create the sequences with much higher conversions and do that in an automated way. You can have hyper-personalization hyper at scale. That is where maybe a startup can now beat the now incumbents, which is sales loft and outreach because their value is 10x better. Totally. And, and we've been just talking about text right now because text is the first, it's the best models out there right now. Why is that? What's the context? Why is it text that's really taken off first and not images? Text is a couple of reasons. One, there's a ton of utility to text. It's very easy to parse. This is the t syntax of language and natural language processing it can be used to understand the data really well. And there's a very clear application for it when you are dealing with sales emails or whatnot. Like what is the value of a generated image? It there's tons, like you could create an architectural model just by like typing something out, or you could create a whole new brand image or logo or whatnot, but it's still like a couple steps away. So one, the data that it's trained on. It's just a little bit more complex. And two, the outputs are, it's not as low hanging fruit as text is. So where are we with text? Sequoia has some good market maps and also timelines on where we are and where we're going in generative AI. In 2022, text is like at the longer form, second draft stage. Moving forward, we're going to have like vertical fine tuning with like scientific papers and what I was talking about with vertical SAS. By 2025, they think, final drafts will be better than the average human. And then maybe around 2030, that text generation will be better than professional writers. So which when is you're talking about the final draft thing, the, we're talking about what it seems to be in, the, in these text ones. So companies like Jasper, they just yep. raised $125 million at a $1.5 billion valuation. In the last year, they generated $40 million in ARR, which is annual recurring revenue, and has 70,000 customers. So they've just gone from zero to somewhere in, in a very short period of time. And they are doing generative AI for copywriting, blog posts, marketing, yep. sales emails, that sort of thing. But the, the use cases you're saying today is that first draft we're not necessarily using AI today to create everything and just automatically post it because of these, like you said, we're kind of getting to the end of the uncan uncanny valley, but we're not a hundred percent there yet. So it gets you to the first draft to say, okay, here's some inputs. What could you write? And it's pretty darn good. And maybe it's a few tweaks in here, you edit it, and then you send it out ready for scheduling. And that's where we are today. So the value of generative AI in this text is get your first draft done a lot quicker and maybe it's this the creativity that the generative ai has it just saves you as a writer staring at a blank page thinking here's a prompt i don't know a subject that's happening in the news how am i going to write something and you spend hours trying to figure it out that will get you the first prompt uh, or the first draft and then you can tweak it and what you're saying is here by tw was it 2025 you said for which stage for being better than uh, like the, the first draft of an actual human yeah so final drafts will be Final drafts will be better than the average human in 2025. So I'm looking at this table. We'll have to share this in the show notes. Yeah. I actually thought that said 20, like 32 and 20, like 35. And this no. is actually saying, yeah, 22, 23, 25. So the exponential rate of improvement is insane. Yeah. So I was testing this out. Do you know who Ted Chang is? No. So he's a science fiction short story writer. That's probably I, why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I took one of his uh, short stories and a summary of that short story 
and input it to GPT-3 with another summary that I created of another story that I wanted created. And it output a short story in Ted Chang's voice uh, using that, that summary that I created, which things get scary now because as much, and like deep fakes were like the first version of this, but if you can start creating content that sounds exactly like somebody else, what's the value of a Stephen King if I can train a whole model on all of Stephen King's writing and then just have a couple bullet points that outlines a new book and then it generates a Stephen King novel? Like, that's where we're going. But this is the perpetual question, right? And you, one comparison is slightly, it's not huge, super similar as a comparison, but just the way that the way people buy and sell software today, back in the day, it was the salesperson that had all the information. And so they were the value point and customers had to speak to a salesperson to find anything about analyzing the software they're going to buy. And now there's this democratization of information on the internet. It's no longer these salespeople that hold all the keys to valuable information that's on the internet. And so naturally the value of a salesperson has to change. It's not about giving them the information on what the product does or what is better than what it's about managing the sales cycle and adding value to the customer. And in the same way, it does pose that question, but there's one, it's scary, but with everything that's scary, it's because there's change and there's opportunities. Yeah. So what is that? What does the value that a writer actually add in this case? Maybe it's not the style of the writing because we can effectively imitate different styles of generative AI, but maybe it just becomes the storyline or these sorts of things. And that does pose an interesting question as to where this is going to come about. Go, this opens up the topic of copywriting. Do you want to dive into this one? I was going to talk a little bit about other things like coding. <laughs> Go on. So we've been talking about text for a while, but everything that we're talking about with text code is the, is in a similar spot right now where you may have heard of Replit or GitHub Copilot. These are, there are these tools that help you program. It's like basically autocomplete for code. And what's cool about that is you can say, create a function that hits this endpoint and takes this data and outputs it in JSON or something. And it'll just create that for you. And so people are saying it'll save 40% of your coding time. And it's scary if you're thinking about like a technical coding interview, should these, should these tools exist? Does it, it's taking a lot of the knowledge out of the technical coding process because this AI is just auto-completing everything for you. But so what's the value then? Just on that point, that's funny because it's like saying to a salesperson today, if they come in to, for an SDR role, it's like saying, we're never going to interview someone and see in the UK, we have this thing called the yellow pages. I don't know what the US equivalent is. It's just like this big book of all the numbers that, you know, of everybody in the industries, right? It's this massive telephone book. And it's we like saying- in the nineties. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a long time ago. We're not that far behind the US. I'm just saying this is a long time ago too. But back in the day, if you wanted someone's number and there's not this lead jet or all these like Chrome extension add-ins where you can get data and zoom info that didn't exist. So it's like saying today, I'm going to interview someone based on their ability to go through the yellow pages. Hello, that's no longer relevant yeah. anymore. So it's not necessarily a skill. So to your point, it's only in this like transition where in the technical interviews, maybe it really doesn't matter how well they're able to write this piece of code. It's just the fact that they know totally. that they need to write this piece of code. Yes, for sure. And it brings up that question, like, what is the value of a person? And a lot of people think it comes down to the ability using their hands to create this piece of art. But now it's just maybe being able to think, I want to have 
X, Y, and Z created. And you just have this intuition that a piece like that will really do well or something. And so maybe if you're in code, like an engineer, you just need to be really good at knowing how the pieces fit together. You don't really need to know how to write the code. And I wonder if there's a similarity to when way back in the days when computers, people coded with binary and uh, so much of coding wasn't as abstracted as it is now that if we're just facing like a new level of abstraction where people aren't going to have to know how the code is written, they're just going to need to know how the pieces fit together in order to create beautiful products. That would do wonders for entrepreneurs because as Naval Ravikant says, if you can build and you can sell, then you're unstoppable. And for most people, if you're a seller to learn how to code is pretty hard. And if you're a coder to learn how to sell is pretty hard. So being able to do these sorts of things without having to learn the application itself is crazy. If you can just talk into a mic and say, Hey, build me a website with my face and Chris's face on the front and call it the search for growth.com and have a bunch of resources linking to all the podcasts and then boom, it does it incredible. That will create not even, we're talking a lot about the short-term capture of value in startups, trying to like optimize and capitalize on this wave, but just think about the absolute fundamental shifts in the world that's going to be able to create. One of the issues of creating value in the world is are there enough people who are have education to be able to learn how to code or learn how to do business to actually go and create cool companies and startups and we're seeing more and more people the proliferation of entrepreneurship has kicked off in the last 20 years but it's only it's still pretty new and can you imagine if everybody has access to all these tools with different perspectives different cultures different backgrounds the amount of value that could be created in the world is actually insane and to your point, it could completely shift the way we do work and interact on a day-to-day basis. And in terms of GDP growth, productivity, it, it's going to be wild. Yeah, there are a couple of key things. One, there's going to be a lot of crap that's created. It's going to be hard because noise is so easy to create already. The noise is just going to get worse. And so how do you rise above that noise? Especially as if everyone is generating the same noise, that's going to be challenging. The second thing that's interesting is we've been talking about text and code, but there's a lot of things that are happening with voice right now too, where Whisper translates voice into text. And if you can have text create some code, build me a function that does that. The next extension is being able to just speak, have this code do X, Y, and Z, and it'll create it without you having to type anything. And so that, that opens up a ton of uh, opportunities for people that can't type as fast or that don't have access to a co- computer that maybe just have their phone and alternatively, like accessibility to people that are disabled in some capacity, it'll be hugely valuable there. Also like voice is 3x, the amount of data that is captured in voice is 3x that of text. A picture paints a thousand words and then a voice maybe a few less, but certainly a lot more than a text. So the point is like, we're just at the very beginning stages of it. There are some really cool applications of that are using voice as like demos right now. There's a newsletter called Ben's Bytes, which we're both subscribed to. That is basically a list of all the new AI demos that are coming out. And there's some videos of people saying, hey, query a SQL database and show me the top three customers 
that live within a 10 mile radius of San Francisco or something. And they just speak it and it generates that and it puts it into the chat. So when was the last time your manager asked you, how many emails did you send this week? Or what's the uh, revenue for this month? Or what's the website hits? And then you get that request, then you go off, you waste 20 minutes going through like a a look at dashboard and trying to figure it out. Instead of that happening, you could literally just type in Slack saying, hey, watch this month's revenue and then boom it reads the model and then sends it back to you that, that'd be insane do you think then we can go into some of the like the market map if you like but from a more general general perspective the first web we talk about web one web two web three these days and like web three has almost been taken as a name with in more kind of in like the crypto world i guess but in web one it was this idea of okay the first use of the internet was we're going to just take what exists in the physical world, like a newspaper or the news report on, on the TV, and we're going to put that online. And it was very much just, oh, there's a newspaper in physical life. Now it's on the internet and anyone can access it. So it was just kind of read only. Web 2 was this evolution from read only to read and write. So now we can interact with the internet and we can make requests. We can interact with applications. And that led to a massive wave of innovation and fundamentally different business models that physically couldn't exist before. In this world, um, it was graphical or graphic user interface, the GUI in which people are interacting with applications and websites. So you type in a text, what's your name? You click a button. In this world, it's going to move towards something which is a different type of user interface. Maybe instead of having to click in predefined fields and click buttons, you've got one text box you can write everything in. Or like you said, you have a, a, the ability to use voice. We can just speak into our phone and we don't even have to interact physically with an application for things to happen on the other side. The potential impacts of that are extensive. But do you think this is something that what you're seeing with Repler and Copilot and these these tools that are being built, do you think we're at the beginning of a new wave or a new user interface? Maybe. I would not call that Web3 as a crypto thing. I would... Forget uh, the name. Forget the name. Yeah. Let's not split hairs over details. But do you think that this is a new way that people are going to be interacting with applications and that this is a new standard? Or do you think this is still too early for us to see? The hardest things about creating a company is changing user behavior. And I think it depends on if people are willing to see like a 10x or improvement using voice to other applications. You goes look back at, to, goes back to Elad's point of is it 0.5 to 3x better? If not, probably not going to change the behavior. If it's literally 10, 20, 100x better, and this is a fuck me wow moment, then maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say it's cool. It's cool being able to speak into your phone and do these things. And are you going to do that in an Uber? Maybe like there, the use cases probably exist, but it's also like asking a customer, is this a product that's interesting to you? A lot of people will say yes, but until they pull out a credit card and actually purchase your product, like you have, you don't have strong signal. Does, how does that work with a technology like this? I would say we have to wait and see what's cool is there are going to be some niche communities that try using it and try doing it. And maybe those take off and who knows, is there a, do you just have voice for every single application that you use? Maybe I know I haven't used WhatsApp voice memos until recently. And some people liked using that a lot earlier. So maybe it's just like a longer time to adopt. I just don't, 
I don't have a good answer yeah. for that. It's probably going to be in a similar way where just what we're seeing with generative AI full stop with these people creating cool photos. There's like the haters, there's the lovers and the, the haters. And do you have Marmite in the US? Yeah, no, I know what it is. So I don't you, know if you I have it in the it English in section of the aisle that no one ever goes <laughs> <Probably>. to. <laughs> so Marmite is this stuff you put on toast and bread in, in a sandwich. And basically it's this black, thick, kind of sludgy looking stuff. And it's got a very particular taste and it's quite it's salty and a bit like bitter. It's, but it's, it's really hard to describe. Honestly, I don't know how to describe it. You just got to try it. And basically you love it or you hate it. <laughs> and it creates this polarization. And so what we see, I think we're seeing now is we've got the people that absolutely love what, what's happening in generative AI and the people who are just like, nah, to this, to a point, they're more pessimistic. They're, well, let's see what happens. This is just a, like a hype value or a hype train. But it is in these early days where there isn't a lot of value created, where people were just pinging around and playing around and seeing what could happen. And you, if you've got to go through that kind of first stage to see what's possible, and then actually where's the 10x or 100x fuck me wow moment. And that's, I think we're not there yet. But it's going to be super interesting. This space is accelerating at 100 miles an hour. Every day that we look at this Ben Ben's Bytes newsletter, he's actually the founder of Makerpad, a no-code community. I, I found that out today, following his other stuff for a while. Every single day he's writing this newsletter, and it's crazy the, the growth that's happening. So who knows? Yeah, it's interesting. Do you play video games at all? I did when I was 15, but I stopped. <laughs> okay. Well, you, you're a video game guy, right? Yeah. I'll dabble in some Breath of the Wild or some <laughs> other games. But for these, what's cool about generative AI also is the ability to let like stories and characters generate on the fly. So before with video mm. games, you have to write this non-player character says, hi, do you want this cool sword? And then you like take the sword or you don't. Moving forward things are going to be procedurally generated and the conversations are going to be way more dynamic. Like you, they'll have the same models that we're talking about for sales conversations will exist one in terms of like images and 3d like mm -hmm. content. So you walk down the path and there are mountains for you, but for your friend, it's trees. And then that's interesting. For, yeah. That's really interesting because the, the word that you said, a dynamic experience, that is the world that currently the way we interact or create user experiences doesn't matter whether it's how we message a user through intercom, through the website, through an email, doesn't really matter. But a lot of these kind of predefined workflows for your product or messages that you communicate, they're all predefined and they're not dynamics. Some of them can be dynamic with maybe one or two input fields and, but the dynamic that those input fields are still referencing a pre-created script, whether it's through the product or like a communication. What you're saying here is taking the game example, we could arrive in a world where let's take a product led growth is a, a, a trend happening at the moment in the startup world where the product is the main driver. And so you, instead of speaking to a salesperson, the product is there to onboard and guide the customer through until they become paying. One of the problems with that is different people want different things from your products. And how can you increase the conversion rate of those people on your product? It's by giving them a customized and personalized experience. But to do that, 
you have to then make those experience, customized experiences, workflows, messaging, and that takes time and you don't know what's actually good. And what happens in all those edge use cases where, okay, I've got a demo, like if we take spend desk, for example, maybe it's a finance person or an employee, and those two people are going to have a different workflow experience. In the world of generative AI, if you're able to create a, an onboarding experience where they say, oh, I'm actually like, I'm like the finance intern and we don't have a predefined script for that, but then we're able to generate this experience so it becomes fully dynamic in the same way that you have someone maybe make a request on a help chat support with a particular, I don't know, maybe they're angry that day or it's this new kind of input and how we have this chatbot that doesn't just give this very static kind of pre-written response created yeah, it's, in a dynamic way. It's going to be nuts because you're going to have tools where you can say, you can show up onto a page and say, I am a finance person and this finance software that might be for finance people and for engineers and like a bunch of different use cases, they could generate a fully customizable demo experience with your brand and like your position, a full video walkthrough without mm. a single person having to touch the experience. Really with back in with back in music with lyrics about you and your company <laughs> totally. automatically that's absolutely mental okay so we've talked a lot about what ifs and all the different potential paths right so we've only spoken about a couple of companies in this the open ai and the kind of models that they're doing some of the open source stuff but there are a ton of companies and sequoia to your point in the show notes we've got there is a market map that goes through all the companies that are operating in the text world of generative ai versus video and code and so on and so forth so maybe we should just touch on to whet the appetite of the listeners what are some of the companies doing cool shit and where should they go and, and look for more info yeah so jasper obviously take a look at copy ai they're all like marketing stuff general writing lex is an interesting one actually the person that is the head of every which is a media startup started lex it's like a way for people to write faster using generative AI that the head of every, I actually ran our high school newspaper together with him, mm. which is funny, but like sales, there's lavender. So lavender is all, yeah. Copywriting for sales emails, basically what we spoke about today, like the prompts and then they'll create things like hooks and stuff like that. Yeah. And then, so th this is all like text-based, mm. but video there, and this is in no order. You should just take a look at the market map too, if you really want to dive into it personalized videos. There's like things like Thesia, Hour One. There's editing and generation, which is like Runway or Flicky. What's really cool about some of this video editing is a person can say, I want to have a video of a soccer player in some woods and with the Adidas logo, and they can just create that on the spot. Okay, so models like business models that could be disrupted, for example, here, contextualizing it, stock photos. Um, totally. That's, that, stock photos are like, that's a big business. It's become like commoditized now. It's hard for you to make money in it because so many people are doing it, but there's a big business of people who need stock videos and photos. And it's so, I've done this before. Like I've made a few video YouTubes on a video and worked to the content team at Spendis. Finding stock stuff is, finding exactly what you want is really hard. and that kind of almost completely annihilates that business. If I was in their shoes, I'd be worried. Yeah. Editing on that one for the for this podcast, we were doing a video podcast. On the last episode we recorded, for some reason, my, my mic wasn't plugged in. So it was my computer mic. 
And I just found out that Adobe has released this free editing tool. They're probably going to make it paid or part of their cloud package. And you basically upload the audio and the video. It will then firstly extract everything, transcribe all the text. You can then select the text and delete to copy and edit it. But for my audio mic, they use AI to take my audio and then basically redo it as if it was recorded professionally. And I tested it out and oh my God, it was mental. It was literally like they just re-recorded it with this mic. Uh, huh. bl blew my mind, blew my mind. And so there's, there is editing and these kind of heavy manual tasks, to your point, that's like a high skill role. And that in, when you record a podcast, just for the context of the people that are listening, it takes, the amount of time is a you've got to write about the notes that you want to talk about the topics get the right structure then you've got to record it which is going to take at least an hour then you've got to ex export it which probably takes i don't know half an hour and then you've got to go and edit it and to edit it for a one hour video is going to take about three hours of editing then you've got to go and write the show notes then you've got to go and upload it across all the different things and then you've got to get all the different little clips and put them on social media so one episode is at, at least probably five hours of work, right? And along that entire life cycle, these sorts of tools could absolutely revolutionize it. The point is like content, the cost of creating content is going to go to zero. And yeah. how, <laughs> what does that mean to our attention spans and how much content will be created? And is it good? How do we think about what is good content? There's going to be, it's going to be a lot of noise out there. So you've got, we took text, video, you talked a little about the Image. coding ones. Are there any other ones in the coding ones outside of the Copilot and Replit that you wanted to mention? No, there's a lot of like documentation creations or summarizing. Summarization is one thing that is used both for text, but also code where say you have a really long research paper, generative AI can just rise it into a few bullets in a way that's easier to read. So you actually don't have to read the whole paper in a similar way. You can do that with documentation and code. So instead of having to spend all that time saying this API needs this information and have comments within the code base, mm. generative AI can just do it on the fly. Image, there's going to be a bunch with brands, open art, crayon, mid journey, salt speech. We talked about this has a lot to do with, I think in a previous time we talked about Steve jobs and Joe Rogan's podcast using being able to take someone's voice and then create a whole transcript, like generated on the fly of two people speaking back to each other. Pretty nuts. Also pretty scary when we talk about fake news and how do we validate what content we're consuming. Mm. And then like next step after image and video, there's like 3D modeling, et cetera. Very deep space, a lot of VC money going into this. Who knows who's going to win? There's probably going to be a lot of people that just burn a ton of cash. <sighs> and probably my thesis is that most of generative AI will be the most valuable. Will It'll be a feature part of a larger ecosystem that's yeah. really focused on some use case. I think the way to, to summarize what we've just discussed in the last hour, I think that the generative AI is really fucking cool. It's going to create a 10 to 100x wow moment for people, but it's going to become commoditized very quickly in the same. And what we're seeing with this money and these companies being created are effectively that 100 meter sprint race to capture value before it gets commoditized. So that's the first thing. The real wave is going to a test is once everyone else comes on board, how are all these ones that have got that initial value going to be able to protect it and create a moat? 
and things again going back to there's the nfx podcast and they have a, a fund they invest in more networked driven businesses marketplaces these sort of things they in their podcast they've got the last few episodes is all about networks and market like defensibility and these sorts of things i definitely recommend giving it a listen again can put it in the show notes they would talk about okay the network itself is really important. We talked about the data that you have access to, the inputs that you're going to prompt your model with, as well as feedback loops. And then there's just some standard business stuff, which is what's your go-to-market? How quick can you acquire customers quickly and more cheaply than your competitors? And do you have a brand? This is a soft thing, but it's so important. And maybe that is going to be the difference between certain companies is just do people like this company? Do they know them better and have a certain association? So it will be very interesting to see this progress over time. I think, and I think you agree that it's a feature that's going to get commoditized and it's what value can you create around this whilst using generative AI as a wedge to capture value in maybe the short term, but you cannot rely on that to keep the value in the long term. Yeah, totally. One clear winner, like OpenAI is going to do really well. Yeah. Good on him, Sam. Um, All right. Should we wrap up there, Chris? Yeah. Sounds right. good. So standard stuff for the pod. Feedback is super important for us. The last couple of episodes we were recording is, is a style of more topical feedback. So stuff that's happening in the news and us spitballing whilst trying to keep as much value per minute spoken as possible. So let us know what you thought of this episode. Send your feedback to feedback at thesearchforgrowth.com. And do you want to plug in the newsletters? Yeah. So Alfie has a newsletter called Rocket GTM that's in the show notes, helping technical founders and salespeople get from zero to 1 million revenue. I have a newsletter called Content I Consumed, which is just a bunch of links that I found fascinating and then some short form writing on things going on in the world. And then, yeah, subscribe to this pod and you can go to the searchforgrowth.com and find all these, our LinkedIn's and other links. Yeah, send us a message on Twitter or LinkedIn and I would love to chat to you. Thanks very much. Until Thanks. next time. Bye. Ciao.